Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of domestic violence, child abuse, attempted suicide, disturbing behaviors, medical malpractice, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. We all respond to grief in different ways. But sometimes, in our most vulnerable moments, healthy coping mechanisms fail us. We lash out, fight back. When grief makes us feel powerless, it can quickly be replaced by rage. Dr. John Kapler was caught in this cycle for most of his life. For decades, he cowered from an inner darkness that always seemed to lurk a couple steps behind him. But out of sight is not out of mind. And if there's one truth about a painful past, it has a way of coming back to haunt us. When acute psychotic episodes struck Dr. Kapler, evil voices directed him to commit vile acts. His pain transformed into a raging beast, and he attempted to kill the very patients he was trusted to protect. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to provide Alastair with some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Dr. John Kapler, an anesthesiologist whose job it was to safely put people to sleep. But unfortunately, his work was guided by a very surprising and sinister voice. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Dr. John Kapler, an LA-based anesthesiologist who attempted to murder several patients with his syringe. But he sets himself apart from our regular offender in that the one time he actually killed, he was using a car. Today, we're exploring Dr. Kapler's tragic early life and how he tried to repress that trauma. Eventually, the burden took its toll and Kapler's mental health severely declined making him a danger to his patients. Next week, we'll examine Kapler's efforts to hide his illness, the psychotic break that forced him out of the medical profession, and his final crime. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On the morning of November 24th, 1975, 46-year-old Dr. John Kapler woke to familiar voices in his head, the kind that always gave him strange instructions. Kapler tried his best to shrug them off as he headed into work. According to his own account, one of his tasks that day was to prepare a pregnant woman's medications for the delivery of her baby. But as Kapler pulled on his scrubs and surgical gloves, the voices persisted. They told him that the woman laying in the hospital bed wasn't human, just a robot. He should give her a whole cocktail of drugs. Do it, the voices urged. So he did. According to Dr. Kapler, after giving his patient pentothal mixed with brevitol, he injected steroids, lidocaine, vasopressors, and antihistamines. Doctors have to be really careful when administering medications to pregnant women, and this combination is worth examining. Because the cocktail had drugs that would simultaneously stimulate and depress the autonomic nervous system, it would essentially throw off the body's equilibrium, leading to things like blood pressure issues, circulatory problems, and poor oxygenation. These symptoms can be especially dangerous for women prior to delivery because they're already dealing with elevated stress hormones, so very safe to assume that Kapler's treatment caused a great deal of harm to this expecting mother. The cardiovascular impairment caused by the drugs would have compromised her cerebral blood flow and overall systemic functioning, which is all the more hazardous for someone prior to giving birth. Within moments, the patient's electrocardiogram began beeping rapidly and Dr. Kapler slipped out of the room. His inner voices had finally turned him into the very monster he'd been trying to keep at bay. Long before Kapler's story took a villainous turn, it was a tragedy, tainted by his belief that it wasn't safe for him to be who he truly was. And it may have stemmed from the very moment Kapler entered the world. He was born on October 10, 1929, 
to two tenth graders who'd conceived him out of wedlock, casting even his earliest moments in shame. Nineteen days later, on October 29th, the Wall Street crash of 1929 rocked the world. Businesses closed their doors, factories halted production, and banks failed. One in four Americans was unemployed. The Great Depression had officially taken hold. Life turned grim for many, and, according to Keith Russell Abloh, author of The Strange Case of Dr. Kapler, The Doctor Who Became a Killer, Kapler's parents were among them. They worked blue-collar jobs in Pittsburgh, a city rocked by industrialization. To ease their struggles, both turned to alcohol and frequently got into drunken arguments. Kapler didn't side with one parent or the other. Both of them beat him senseless. When he wept in pain, he was either neglected or berated. So Kapler learned to hide his feelings to protect himself. His father emphasized that men had to be strong. For example, when Kapler tried to run from other kids in his neighborhood as a child, his dad forced him to fight them. This was Kapler's first formative experience with fear. There was only one way to respond. Puff out his chest and throw a punch. Get mad, get mad, his fellow playmates would yell before a brawl ensued. And Kapler listened. From that point on, it seems the rage never left him. In 1944, 15-year-old Kapler lost his younger brother to lymphoma. Although everyone expresses grief differently, Kapler's response was nightmarish. He stole a car and drove it straight into a funeral home. If Kapler was injured in the crash, it was never reported. But he soon had other blows to reconcile. Around this time, his mum gave birth to two twin girls and his father abandoned their family. Even after Kapler moved out of the house himself, he still felt a responsibility to take care of his mum and baby sisters. In 1946, he enrolled in a pre-law program at the University of Pittsburgh, but he dropped out after a year. School wasn't going to bring him money fast enough, and he wanted to square away his mum's financial burdens. He decided that serving in the army would better help him achieve that. During a deployment to East Asia that lasted several months, Kapler embraced his now hardened exterior. He served in the Korean War on combat status, where he likely witnessed brutal fighting on the battlefields. To cope, he frequently got drunk and talked back to his officers. Perhaps he was turning into a version of himself his father would be proud of, abandoning the fearful child within him who just wanted to be heard but he also became increasingly cynical about his mum. He tried to pay off her debts before he left for Korea, and he wanted a way to escape the burdens of his poor childhood. Around 1950, 21-year-old Kapler found it in a psychiatric nurse named Tommy. He met her at an army dance shortly after returning to the US. With songs of the 1950s coloring the mood, the two got acquainted and Kapler quickly learned her past was nothing like his. The tall brunette was from an affluent family of dentists, 
connections that could lead Kapler to a more comfortable life. Before long, Kapler and Tommy were going steady, and in 1953, 24-year-old Kapler decided to cut off his mum once and for all. He married Tommy that same year. And really, it served as a new shield of armor for Kapler. He converted to her family's Episcopalian faith. He also enrolled in a college that both Tommy's father and brother had attended, determined to become a dentist like them. Sure, maybe Kapler hadn't come to terms with his years of suffering. But in his mind, that wasn't the way forward. Because it wasn't healing he was after, but freedom. A total forgetting of all he'd ever felt. All of it, that was, except the rage. Coming up, Kapler's professional status can't keep his pain at bay. Hi, it's Alastair, and I'm thrilled to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast Network is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's based on the popular cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this fascinating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. This is an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it. There are limited copies available, so be sure to visit parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1955, 26-year-old John Kapler had propelled miles beyond the poor Pittsburgh childhood he'd come to resent. His new marriage paved the way for his new identity, pushing him towards a career as a dentist. The first order of business was completing his bachelor's degree at Emory University in Atlanta. But neither Kapler nor his wife Tommy wanted to hold off on starting a family. While Kapler was in school, Tommy gave birth to their first child, a baby girl. Kapler probably felt delighted that he'd be able to give this child a better upbringing than the one he'd had. But his joy was soon overshadowed. His newborn, only months old, was diagnosed with a cancerous tumor above her left kidney. It was neuroblastoma, 
The tragedy of the news might have struck him the way his younger brother's death had some 15 years earlier. Lymphoma had been the culprits then. Perhaps childhood cancer ran in Kapler's family. That's an interesting point, Alistair. Some children with cancer do carry cancer-predisposing mutations inherited from a parent, but this wasn't the case here, given the two types. In truth, most cancers aren't inherited, but it's thought that about 1 in 10 people are diagnosed due to some genetic susceptibility. Parents may pass genetic mutations to their children that increase the likelihood for certain cancers, but sometimes genes can randomly become altered during development, which can create new cancer risks, something known as de novo inheritance. As the term suggests, those mutated cancer-associated genes can then later be passed to the child's offspring, creating a future line for that particular genetic abnormality. All in all, it was extremely sad that Kapler's child was diagnosed with neuroblastoma, but I wouldn't characterize this as any kind of recurring pattern in his family, given our limited information. Instead of turning to friends and colleagues for support, Kapler kept the diagnosis secret. Instead, he invested more in his career. In 1956, 26-year-old Kapler chose to become a doctor instead of a dentist. He enrolled in the Bowman Gray School of Medicine in North Carolina, where he was known as a serious student. But outside of the classroom, Kapler was much less endearing. He was argumentative and staunchly defended stances that his colleagues considered weird. It was almost as if he picked opinions just to be contrary it made him an outcast among his peers. And their opinion of him certainly wasn't helped by his temper. On one occasion, a friend accidentally opened a piece of Kapler's mail. Kapler blew up at his friend, berating him for the mistake. And these outbursts became a pattern, making people a little bit afraid of him. But his wife, Tommy, was able to counterbalance some of this. He kept her at his side when he went out with friends. Whenever he'd say something out of sorts, Tommy would reply, Now John... cueing him to reel it in. Perhaps seeing the impact of his wife's charms, Kapler tried to become more like her. He adopted Tommy's southern accent, despite being from Pittsburgh. Not that any of his friends knew that, He never shared details about where he was from or other aspects of his personal life. Secrecy became his armor, especially when the going got tough. During his second year in medical school, his three-year-old daughter succumbed to cancer. Indeed, even then, John remained tight-lipped. He avoided the one thing that would have been healthiest for his grief talking about it. Instead, he soldiered on, focusing on his work. Two years later, in 1960, Kapler graduated medical school and, after short stints in South Carolina and North Carolina, moved to California with his wife Tommy. Between 1960 and 1964, Tommy gave birth to four daughters. Kapler also established his own private medical practice, though he immediately hated the work. Getting to know his patients 
and letting them get to know him wasn't exactly appealing to Kepler. He wanted something more hands-off, but he also valued the prestige that came with his position. So, for the time being, he stuck with it. Still, the young father was struggling to balance out his time between the office and home. That stress was only compounded when Tommy's dad died in 1963. He had become a surrogate father to Kapler, one who didn't abuse him and encouraged his potential. Once again, Kapler grieved silently, never showing the pain he truly felt. But it might have expressed itself in other ways. Around this time, John began experiencing chest pains. He went to an intensive care unit thinking he must have a heart problem. But his workups revealed nothing was wrong with it. According to author Keith Russell Abloh, doctors later diagnosed him with stomach ulcers, a hiatal hernia, and erosive esophagitis. A range of factors can contribute to these conditions, but the common through-line cause is increase in prolonged stomach acidity. Peptic ulcers are sores that develop within the lining of the small intestine or stomach, and gastric acid is corrosive to that lining. A hiatal hernia is when a small portion of the upper stomach pushes through the diaphragm and into the chest cavity, and this can happen as a result of the esophageal sphincter loosening over time. A hiatal hernia can, in turn, push the stomach's acid up into the esophagus or the tube that connects the mouth to the stomach. This can then create or worsen an existing esophagitis, which is a severe and painful inflammatory reaction in the lower esophagus. In reference to our story, repetitive stress, unresolved grief, trauma, and abuse can all be major contributing factors to these issues and how they amp up the production of stomach acid and impair overall gut health. It's critically important for doctors to recognize that organic diseases can be psychosomatically induced by emotional suffering. This triple diagnosis must have been pretty shocking for Kapler. It was only when his emotional issues had manifested into physical ails that Kapler took a long, hard look in the mirror. And what he saw looking back at him was someone who had to cancel his patient's appointments for the day because his pain was too great. But far worse was the grim prediction his own doctors had for him. He'd never practice medicine again. It was a demanding job and he wouldn't have the stamina for it with his declining health. So Kapler begrudgingly sold his practice. It was a devastating hit to his ego. Being a doctor was a huge part of his identity. Without it, he may have felt he was giving way to his inner demons. No longer hidden beneath the steel armor of I'm a doctor, they spoke up in the form of depression. Kapler soon met with a psychiatrist. Dr. Ronald Monaco noted that Kapler, quote, used a lot of denial. To no one's surprise, Kapler wasn't interested in unpacking his emotional wounding. Weeks later, when he was feeling slightly better, he decided it was time to get a new job. Kapler said that in 1966, he saw an ad posted by the CIA seeking medical professionals. 
maybe working with the esteemed agency was the confidence boost he needed. So, 36-year-old Kapler inquired and claims to have struck up a correspondence with them. However, we don't know if this actually happened, because Kapler was in the midst of a mental crisis. Up until his diagnosis, Kapler had tamped down any depressional grief with silence, as he'd been conditioned to do in early childhood. But perhaps meeting with the psychiatrist had opened some sort of floodgate within him, because in the weeks that followed his CIA inquiry, Kapler grew deeply paranoid. He made accusations that his house was bugged and that certain members of his family were being used to spy on him. Neither of those things were true, so it isn't outside the realm of possibility that the CIA had never communicated with Kapler in the first place. The ad itself may have been a delusion. But Kapler didn't seem to think so. He spiraled, feeling as though everywhere he turned, double agents were trying to sabotage him. His wife Tommy grew increasingly worried as Kapler's behavior towards her grew more hostile. He didn't trust her. He also began hearing voices. That was enough for Tommy. A psychiatric nurse in her own right, she knew her husband needed help. So, she had him admitted to the Benjamin Rush Neuropsychiatric Center in Orange County, California. There, Kapler was diagnosed with paranoid-type schizophrenia. It's possible that the physical ailments he developed, the chest pain, hernia, and ulcers, were in some way linked to this condition. But we can't know for sure. In any case, Kapler stayed at the facility and was prescribed a regular drug regimen of antipsychotics. After six weeks, his mental status was cleared and he was discharged. While a patient's acute psychosis can typically be resolved in days, it usually takes a while to develop a sustainable treatment plan and get them stabilized. In that regard, Kapler's six-week stay in treatment seems pretty appropriate to me. Much of this time would have been dedicated to stabilizing his medication regime, regulating his sleep, and minimizing his overall stress. Healthcare providers at the facility would have also checked on any other medical issues that may have been worsened during his psychotic episode. Ultimately, Kapler's release from psychiatric care was inevitable, and this is always a concern, especially with those suffering from a paranoid schizophrenia. In my experience, it's very difficult to keep this patient group compliant with their medications and receptive to treatment. The most important aspect of Kapler's recovery was determining how he'd be able to maintain optimal health in the ensuing months and years. But Kapler seemed to think that his release from the facility was a testament to his well-being, proof that he was completely fine. It seems Kapler stopped taking his medication, which went directly against hospital protocol. Most people with schizophrenia benefit from taking medications for years, sometimes their entire lives if the illness is recurrent. Kapler had no such intention. He was too focused on getting a new job. Less than two weeks after he'd been released, in August of 1966, he landed one, promoting medications for a pharmaceutical company. But Kapler quickly came to resent it. People in the business called him by his first name, not doctor. 
He felt too intelligent to be working along salesmen who didn't appreciate his expertise. Still, Kapler was determined to succeed, so he stuck with the role. But before August had come to an end, Kapler flew to Chicago for a business trip. While there, the voices in his head returned and he began telling co-workers that he'd been drugged and was being followed. Concerned, Kapler's co-workers suggested he call his wife, who immediately coordinated a flight home for him. In the car on the way home from the airport, Kapler struggled to communicate with Tommy. He seemed confused and out of it. She knew his mental state had regressed and immediately admitted him to the Benjamin Rush Neuropsychiatric Center for a second round of psychiatric treatment. While in treatment, Kapler brought up the CIA again, claimed Tommy was trying to poison him, and complained of the chest pain that he'd experienced several years prior. Maybe it never really went away. Maybe the tightness there was merely the past trying to get his attention. But he wasn't about to start listening. Kapler silenced his psychosis once more with antipsychotic medications and was discharged in September. One might think that after two psychotic breaks in the course of a couple of months, Kapler would take some time to reflect on what mattered and establish a stress-free life for himself. But as was Kapler's pattern, when the going got tough, he forced himself to work harder. He applied to an anesthesiology residency program at the University of Southern California. The program had an October start date. With less than a full month after his release from psychiatric care, Kapler was already onto his next career goal. Only this one had deadlier implications. Coming up, Kapler weaponizes a syringe. Now, back to the story. 36-year-old John Kapler couldn't seem to catch a break. Throughout 1966, he'd faced a rising paranoia that the CIA was after him, two stays in a psychiatric ward, and an unstable professional life. These events were no coincidence. Though he'd been diagnosed with paranoid-type schizophrenia, Kapler was inconsistent about going to therapy and taking medication, likely because he didn't want to confront what was truly ailing him. Perhaps by ignoring a pain that wanted to be heard, Kapler's mind gave rise to voices that didn't give him a choice in the matter. Even then, when he was experiencing schizophrenic episodes with paranoia, Kapler seemed to maintain the belief that times of adversity were for toughening up, for pulling on armor and acting stronger than he felt. So, in October 1966, that's exactly what he did. He enrolled in the University of Southern California's Anesthesiology Residency Program. Supposedly, admissions for this program weren't very competitive at the time because not many people applied. There was more money to be made in other medical professions. Less competitive applicant pools can pose challenges for programs who rely on high enrollment. 
But hospitals and schools do need to be careful about who they're admitting, for obvious reasons. Institutions faced with this dilemma may loosen qualifications for applicants, which on the scary side of the equation can sometimes lead to underqualified medical professionals in positions involving critical care. While money might be the motivator for some entering less populated fields of medicine, I wouldn't claim this to be a generality. The drive behind choosing one medical specialty over another is highly varied and personal. Ultimately, I don't think the financial gain is the incentive for most doctors, but it's definitely something to look out for, for your patient's sake and your own. Circling back, though, it goes without saying that an institution should accept someone based on necessary qualifications and be wary of opportunists. Kapler's cohort at USC was a strange mix of people. One of the residents recalled that a guy could have been a nut, but you'd tolerate him if he had any technical expertise. A different resident was caught using Demerol ampules when instructed to give general anesthetics, which led to a series of cardiac arrests. But maybe Kapler appreciated that his classmates were less qualified because it made him look that much better. For the first time since he'd sold his own practice, Kapler could feel like a revered expert. That sense of superiority followed him through his completion of the program in 1968, when 38-year-old Kapler began practicing as a freelance anesthesiologist. There are several benefits to being a self-employed anesthesiologist, but they all center around increased autonomy. Without being on the hospital staff, freelance anesthesiologists can avoid certain insurance and malpractice issues. They can also set their own hours and fees. Kapler likely knew he'd enjoy the freedom of his new professional framework. He wouldn't have to get close to any of his patients, like they expected of a primary care physician. He would just be in and out, offering anesthesia wherever needed. And he knew it paid well, too. Kapler categorized himself as, quote, an extremely competitive specialist and frequently referenced obscure medical journals in order to put his intellect on display. According to author Keith Russell Abloh, he also quoted high fees for his services to give employers the impression that he was skilled. Freelancing specialists still negotiate service fees to this day, while employees of managed care groups have set rates dictated by the insurance companies that cover their facilities. Private specialists can set whatever price they choose, no matter their competence. However, generally speaking, prices set by these private doctors have some relation to their level of experience or the years they've logged in practice. It'd be a pretty audacious move to set your going rate exorbitantly high without the know-how to back it up, and yet some doctors unfortunately do this unapologetically. This is most often a failed strategy, though, because word of their incompetence or inexperience circulates quickly, and today our interconnectivity makes this especially true. However, I could see this maneuver fooling people more effectively in the 1960s, and it could have skewed the perception of someone attempting to hire one of these dishonest doctors. Kapler ultimately got away with the rates he set and re-acclimated to life as a prestigious and high-earning medical professional. Meanwhile, his personal life boomed too. His wife gave birth to another child, making the Kapler residence a five-children household. 
Sadly, none of them knew who their dad really was. Then again, it seems Kepler didn't truly know who he was either. He often shirked off fatherhood by performing the role of tired doctor. But we become what we pretend to be. And after a few years, Kepler actually was a tired doctor, taxed by his schedule and stressed by his work. The mounting pressures brought back the return of a familiar condition. Kepler was hearing voices again. On the evening of November 23, 1975, Kapler and Tommy went out for dinner at Jean's Blue Room in Sherman Oaks. The old-fashioned French bistro was a popular haunt for Los Angelinos at the time, and as Kapler and Tommy looked around, they noticed the actress who had played the witch in The Wizard of Oz. Kapler wondered if she was a real witch. His wife tried to move the conversation along, hoping her husband's odd behavior was just a passing mood, but it soon became clear that wasn't the case. The couple drove home, and Kapler remained preoccupied, though it wasn't clear what with. His mind churned as he went to sleep that night. He tossed and turned in bed, wondering who'd really written Shakespeare's plays. The question suddenly seemed so important, and the voices provided answers instead of sleep. The next morning, those same voices persisted. He was drowsy too, but he went into work anyway at one of his regular hospitals, St. Joseph's. Shortly after he arrived, the voices instructed him to improperly drug a woman he was hired to anesthetize before a C-section. And Kapler listened. This was the first time Kapler's mental condition influenced his work on patients. After swiftly injecting her with a toxic cocktail, he watched in both shock and bemusement. The woman's heart rate became erratic. Kapler didn't hang around to see if she survived. Instead, he moved on to another patient. Someone who like the first woman, needed him to administer anesthetics. But like before, the voices in Kapler's head instructed him to kill. He administered an inappropriate dose of an unknown drug. When the woman's heart rate became irregular, Kapler signaled a code blue. Then he headed to the room of a third victim following the same destructive pattern. Again, Kapler signaled a code blue when things went south, which does reveal that some part of his rational mind was functioning. But the voices were getting louder, directing his every move. Kapler fled from the hospital, adrenaline pulsing through his veins, and tried to break into a car in the parking lot. When that didn't work, he gave up, hopped into his own car, and sped onto the freeway. While traveling between 60 and 65 miles per hour, Kapler suddenly turned his vehicle into the median strip and struck another car. When the passengers in the other car exited, Kapler didn't wait for cops or emergency responders to arrive at the scene. He hijacked their car and crashed a second time. Then he promptly got out, 
and walked toward oncoming traffic. The voices gave one last instruction. He must jump in front of a bus. But Kapler wouldn't complete their final directive. Even as he was arrested and put in jail, the severity of the moment was totally lost on him. Locked in the cell, his behavior only worsened. He sang a song, acted out a scene from Romeo and Juliet, and tried to eat feces from the prison's toilet bowl. Though police officers around him may have been amused by Kapler's unhinged mental state, there was nothing funny about it. He was mentally sick, completely divorced from reality. Due to Kapler's collective behavior and actions, it's likely that this outburst was an intense schizophrenic episode. These severe experiences can go on for weeks if left untreated, and they'll likely reoccur without ongoing care. Unfortunately, there's no way to simply snap someone out of a schizophrenic episode, and the process of ending one often necessitates a multi-medication approach in conjunction with a watchful eye. It's also important to be very clear and comforting with people who are in this state, which sometimes means affirming their hallucinations or delusional thoughts, no matter how wild they may be. Given how unhinged from reality these people are during all of this, the last thing you want to do is to upset or anger them. Kapler's voices had been talking to and tormenting him for around 24 hours at this point, and they didn't show any signs of stopping. There shouldn't have been a shred of doubt as to how psychologically distressed he was, given the acuteness of the episode and being anywhere near him at the time would have warranted extreme precaution. When Tommy brought Kapler home from jail, he wanted to be alone, but not so he could rest and recover. Tommy overheard him talking to himself as if in a conversation with someone. When Kapler went to the bathroom, Tommy pressed her ear to the door. She heard Kapler ask, Do I have to do it? When she opened the door, she found her husband drinking feces from the toilet as he'd done in jail hours earlier. It was a jarring reality check for Tommy, who was only just beginning to understand how truly dangerous Kapler's erratic mental outbursts were. Tommy informed a few of Kapler's colleagues who in turn contacted psychiatrist Lloyd Hindman. An ambulance was then called to take him to the hospital. A doctor noted that Kapler's state was characterized by, quote, feverish activity, pressured thinking and speech, bizarre and irresponsible behavior, and an element of grandiosity. These symptoms seemed to affirm Kapler's previous schizophrenia-related diagnoses. As Keith Russell Ablo writes, however, psychiatrist Lloyd Hindman instead claimed Kapler had suffered from a, quote, acute manic psychosis. Because Kapler told Hindman he'd never heard any voices. We're not sure why Kapler said this. It's possible he thought the stigma surrounding schizophrenia would jeopardize his future job prospects. While a hospital can't outright refuse to hire a doctor due to a mental condition, medical boards have a duty to protect patient care. If his actions at St. Joseph's ever got out, Kapler might be forced to explain what caused them. Maybe an acute manic episode felt easier for him to disclose if it ever came to that. Whatever Kapler's reasoning, 
he took his treatment in stride, determined to make it out of the hospital as quickly as possible. To him, just a short period of antipsychotic medications and laying low was all he'd need to convince professionals in the psychiatric ward that he should be discharged. And on December 10th, 1975, he was. Medical professionals at St. Joseph's scrambled to explain what had truly happened on November 24th. While all Kapler's victims had lived, including the baby involved in the C-section, that mother suffered lasting brain damage. But the hospital resolved not to call the anesthesiologist on his errors. It's possible they thought the scandal might tarnish the facility's reputation and hurt hospital profits. So they kept quiet, leaving Kapler free to work elsewhere. He didn't wait to pursue it. In Kapler's mind, the voices had been silenced once again. He'd be just fine. But if Kapler's history revealed anything, it was that the past had a grim way of returning when he least expected it. Just beneath his armor of medical prestige, the voices were lurking, just waiting for the next trigger to catalyze them. Next week, the split between Kapler's public identity and psychosis permanently halts his career. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on Dr. John Kapler, among the many sources we used, we found The Strange Case of Dr. Kapler, The Doctor Who Became a Killer by Keith Russell Abloh, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murder stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hi, it's Alastair, and I'm thrilled to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast Network is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's based on the popular cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this fascinating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. This is an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it. There are limited copies available, so be sure to visit parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. 
That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.